morning. It's great to be back again. It's been a couple weeks since I've been preaching, since I've been uh, coming up and, and uh, doing, doing a message other than a little devotional. So the last two Sundays we've had homecoming, and then last, this past Sunday I was out of town. So we just had a short little devotional that I put on Facebook for you. But, but I'm excited now to be back, to be starting a new sermon series to be in the Word, to be preaching. Um, it's kind of been nice to have a little short little break, but I hope you're excited to start this new series. We're, at, we're doing a new series on the book of Revelation. It's going to be a four-sermon series, and obviously <laughs> that's a lot of ground to cover in four sermons um, in the book of Revelation. But we're really kind of, we're not, the goal of this series isn't to dissect Revelation and to try to find all these little itty-bitty pieces of, of how each word means something or how each image goes to a, reflects a certain time period in history or is, is being prophetic in a certain way. We're really just looking at the meat of the book, at what John the Revelator is trying to speak through Jesus, what this vision, what the purpose of it is. And and we're really trying to to kind of get behind the book and understand why it's written and what power it has for us. Uh, so I hope you're excited for this. It, it, this sermon series is just called The Vision of Victory. And that's what Revelation is. It's a victory vision. It's not a doomsday and doom and gloom. Um, and so I hope that, that this is a, a, a series that you're excited for. And before we get started with this opening message, I just want to have a word of prayer and, and ask for God's guidance in, in this series and in this message. So to join with me in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this time that we get to study your word. And wherever anyone might be, whether they're listening at home, whether they're tuning in from the road, or whether they're sick, I just pray that, that they're eager to dive into your word, that they are excited to see what you have for them. God, you have handed down your word, your scriptures throughout history, and it's, it, it doesn't change. It's inerrant. And I just pray that right now we see your glory as we study it, and that we're excited to commit and draw near to you as, as we study your word and as we study your promises for your people. God, be with us this morning. Be with those who are sick and bring healing and peace to them. Thank you for your love. Speak through this message today, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So somewhere along the lines, when it comes to Revelation, what we have, what, what has happened is that pop culture has taken all the imagery, all the, the monsters and the dragons and, and the, the, just the crazy imagery that's found within the book of Revelation, and they've kind of <laughs> they've turned it into a horror scene. They've turned it into you know, this doom and gloom, this cataclysmic event. And, and so now, every time you see a, a movie or read a book about the end times, somewhere or another there's some sort of reference to the book of Revelation, to the Christian eschatology of, of how everything's going to end and, and how you know, 
Michael's going to come and fight Satan, throw him into a lake of fire, or, or there's going to be all kinds of plagues and famines, and, 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 and everything that pop culture tells us is based off of the imagery of the book of Revelation. And, and because of that, Revelation, in, a, in the minds of a lot of people, and in, in the minds of even many Christians, is a book that is supposed to elicit fear out of Christians. In, in our minds, when we read Revelation, or when we teach Revelation, we teach it as this is supposed to elicit the fear of God of you. This, this is a book of the picture of God's wrath. But I'm telling us, it's not. It is the opposite of that. The book of Revelation is a book of God's love. It's a book of hope that we place in God. But so often, especially when we're younger and we experience Revelation for the first time, we don't see it that way. And I can remember when I first kind of began to, to think about Revelation, when I first began to think about the end times, think about Christ's coming, and I, I first came to realize, you know, what it meant. You know, I, I, I became a Christian, and I experienced the love of God, and I experienced his desire to save us from hell, for his, his desire, the, the lengths that he went to do that. But it wasn't until a few years after I became a Christian that I, start to, I started to see or read about or understand a little bit Revelation. And I got to thinking, how can this God of love, how can this God who went to such great lengths to save humanity then basically blow up the world? How, how, how is he willing to just you know, come in and, and, and send people to hell if... If he loves and died for us so that that wouldn't happen. And, and I remember I asked my mom about this once, and I was probably seven or eight years old. And I can remember I was lying in bed one night, and she had come in to say goodnight, tuck us in. And, and I can remember just I had been really struggling with this question. I said, Mom, what, you know, if Jesus died for us, why is he sending, why is he going to come and send you know, everyone to hell? And, and when is Jesus going to come? And I remember her answer was, well, you know, he loves us and he wants us to accept him. But if we don't accept him, you know, we can't be with him. And we just simply don't know when he's coming. The Bible says he's going to come like a thief in the night, which means he'll come when no one is expecting it. And then she said goodnight, tucked me in and, and went on her own merry way. And for years, <laughs> I kept thinking about that conversation, about how, you know, Jesus is going to come in a thief in, like a thief in the night. And that scared me because Revelation scared me. And I can remember for years after that conversation, I kept thinking that Jesus was going to come when everyone forgot that he was going to come, when everyone just kind of forgot that he promised to return. So I made it my, my life's mission to never stop thinking about Jesus coming back. I, my, I, in my mind, I was the last defense for Jesus' return. And in my mind, I kept saying, you know, as long as I don't forget that Jesus is coming back, as long as I don't forget that, that this is all going to happen, Jesus isn't going to come. But if I forget it, then Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to die and the world's going to blow up. Because that was just how I viewed Revelation. It was just a simplistic view of Revelation. But the thing is, we... I, I think many of us have this tendency, we, we might not go to the outlandish lengths that I went of thinking that I was the last defense preventing, you know, the apocalypse. 
but we all have this tendi- tendency to look at the apocalyptic style that Revelation is written in and then turn it into a horror story instead of a love story. And it's unfortunate that this is the case, but, but because of pop culture, because of the way pop culture has, has looked at the style, the, the literary function of the book of Revelation, many people hold these types of feelings that I had as a child. But the church, in the day of John's writing, the church who would have received the revelation of John would not have seen it in the way that we often see it today. The church that received this letter, this revelation, they would have saw it as this divine hope. They would have saw it as, they they would have seen, experienced it as Christ revealing Christ giving a glimmer, a glimpse of the eternal restoration of all things that was provided to us through him. The book of Revelation is a call to place our hope in Christ regardless of the circumstances that we are experiencing in our life. It's a call for us to commit to him. And I want to just read through the opening parts of Revelation, through the opening chapter of Revelation, and and listen to how John begins this apocalyptic book. Listen to how John begins this writing. He says, John, this is a form of introduction in a letter, says, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn, from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Now when you read those first three verses, uh, verses 4 through 7 of of chapter 1, does that sound like a book that is about to be a horror story? Does that sound like a book that is is about to depict the doomsday, the apocalypse, the, 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 the end of all things burning in, in fire and brimstone. Does, it, does that sound horrific to you? you know, as a Christian in the early church, they would have taken this revelation from John and they would have seen this as, oh my goodness, you know, John has seen something, John has experienced something, and it has to do with the fact that Jesus is coming now, that is a beautiful thing, and that is something that they all would have placed their hope in. And the reason they would have placed their hope in this was because of the context that is behind the book. The context that every Christian, every believer, every person within the church of this time would have understand, would have understood. And, and there's three different things Three different pieces of context behind this book that we have to keep in mind as we go throughout this series. The first piece is that this book is what is known as apocalyptic literature. Okay, so 
what that means is the style that this book was written in was meant to be cryptic. It was meant to use a lot of imagery. It was meant to use a lot of allusions and references to, to, to big events, to cataclysmic events. That was just the style that it was written in. And what that means is a lot of times we put up way too much emphasis on the imagery, on, on what is used to evoke emotions, rather than seeing the purpose of the imagery. Now, we, we try to nitpick every little detail of Revelation and, and give each detail a meaning, but when they originally read this, they probably wouldn't have done that as much. They would have been more focused on why the imagery was there, not what the imagery means. Because that's, they would have known, they would have, apocalyptic literature was a, was a prominent style of literature within the Greco-Roman world. The second point of context we have to remember is that this book was written in the Greek language. It was written in the Greek language by John, who probably wasn't the Apostle John, but just some church uh, theologian or possibly a bishop. It was written in Greek, but when you read it, you can easily see that even though he wrote it in Greek, he was thinking in Hebrew. And that might seem insignificant. That might, not, that might seem like it's not very important. But Hebrew was the language of the Old Testament. Hebrew was the language of the Jews. Greek was the modern language of the time. And so John wrote it in Greek because that's what everyone would have been reading. But he was thinking, and you can see this by the way that he used verbs and the way that he you know, alluded to different things. He was thinking in Hebrew. And that's important because he's trying to mirror and mimic all the different prophetic writings of the, the prophetic books of judgment like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah, all these books of the Old Testament that talk about the ultimate and final judgment and all the ap apocalyptic writings of the Jewish world, the like book of Enoch, all, all these uh, uh, other oracles that were apocalyptic in nature. He, he, wrote, he was thinking in Hebrew but writing in Greek and as they read this, they would have understood this, and they would have been reading the, the revelation of John and thinking, oh man, he's, he's kind of alluding to what we know about in the Old Testament. He's alluding to what the prophets say. He's alluding to this. He's not just speaking off whim here. He's not just, you know, writing this, not, this nonsensical things for no reason. He's alluding to something else. So that's an important piece of context to remember. But the most important piece I think we have to keep in mind is the period of time that John wrote this book in. The year that he wrote this in. It would have been the year 95 AD that John wrote this book. And the reason that's important is because by knowing the year he wrote this book, we can know what is going on within the church, within the world of that time. And what was going on was one of the most horrific events that the church has ever faced. And that was that they were experiencing an emperor that was extremely oppressive towards them. Emperor Domitian. His name was, was Domitian. And the reason this, empire, this emperor was so, so brutal against the church was because he demanded them, he demanded all of the Roman Empire to worship him. And this wasn't something new. He wasn't the first emperor to, to be worshipped, but he was the first one to demand worship. 
And emperor worship began in 29 BC. And, and it was Emperor Augustus who allowed the Roman Empire to worship the emperor before him, Julius Caesar. And, and it wasn't that Augustus said, hey, I'm a god, worship me, or hey, Julius was a god, worship him. It was the people of the Roman Empire wanted to worship the emperor, and Augustus just said, okay, go for it. That, that, was, that was it. And so all of the emperors that followed Augustus were worshipped as well, but none of them really thought of themselves as gods. None of them really kind of thought that they deserved the worship or they didn't demand the worship. It was just kind of a way for people to pay homage to Rome. It was a way for people to show their support of Rome. But enter Domitian in around 82, 83 AD, and he comes in and he believes adamantly that he is a god. And so not only does he desire to be worshipped, but he demands it. He demands all of the citizens of the Roman Empire to worship him, to pay homage to him, to, to, to pray to him. And he says, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to deport you. I'm going to persecute you. Because that means that you're not committed to Rome. Now, what kind of contradiction does this have with the Christian faith? The emperor Domitian was demanding that the Christians say, Caesar is Lord. That was literally what was the proclamation that you were meant to make if you were worshiping, if you were a Roman citizen worshiping Domitian. He said, you have to say that Caesar, that I am Lord. How does that contradict the Christian faith? Because we are called to worship God alone. We are called to worship the, 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 the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and them alone. We are not to give anyone else praise, not to give anyone else worship, not to bow down to anyone else. And so the Jews and the Christians refused to worship Domitian. And they were persecuted because of that. And that is the most important piece of context that we need to keep in mind when reading the book of Revelation. That John is writing this letter... As he's facing persecution, as we're going to see here in a second, and he's writing it to a church who is in fear of facing this worldly persecution from an oppressive dictator. Listen to the, um, verses 9 through 11 in the opening chapter of Revelation. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of the God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so what he is saying here is he's saying, I'm, this is me, I'm John, and I am your partner. I'm your brother in Christ. I, 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 I have been baptized into Christ. I have his spirit upon me, and I am your partner in affliction, meaning persecution, meaning I go through all this persecution the same way you have, and... So much so that I am being persecuted while writing this letter. I'm on the island of Patmos, which was this small island that people, that criminals got exiled to, where they had to work in mines, where they had to, to, to really face oppression because they were viewed as criminals. And, and John had been exiled there, and he's saying, I'm exiled because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Meaning he's exiled because he refused to bow down to Caesar. He was committed to Jesus and only Jesus. He was committed to the word and only the word. 
And because of that, he is being persecuted. And he's saying, I'm like you. I experience this like you. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So what is happening here in, in that voice, as we would come to surmise, is Jesus. And John is saying to the church, listen, I'm on this island because I'm being persecuted, because I refuse to worship Caesar, because I'm standing firm on Jesus. And while I'm doing that, because I'm a prophet, because the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus has come to me and says, and is saying, I am to speak to everyone in the church. You know, he lists these seven churches. Seven is kind of a show of completion, of wholeness. And he's saying, I am writing this to the entire church, to all of you, because Jesus has told me to give you this message. And so the message that John is giving to the church is because of the persecution the church is facing, because of the hopelessness that the church is feeling, because of the worry and anxiety that the church is starting to go through because of this emperor Domitian that is causing so much persecution and turmoil against Christians. And John is saying Jesus has a message for us, church. And his message, you know, if you go back to verse 7, that's the thesis. Verse 7 is the thesis of the book of Revelation. And he's saying the message that Jesus has is, look, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. As soon as the church would have read that verse, they would have known where it came from, which is a really important piece of revelation. That John is seeing this vision, he's seeing this message from Jesus, Jesus is giving this message because he's being persecuted, the church is being persecuted, and they're hopeless, and they're worried, and they're anxious, and Jesus is saying, listen, remember what was told in the prophets. That's why he says, verse 7, listen, see if this sounds familiar. This is Daniel chapter 7. Verses 11 through 14, it says, you know, this is Daniel experiencing a vision. It says, as I watched then, because of the sound of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking, as I continued watching, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He was approached by the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that would not be destroyed. That sounds identical, almost, to the way John opens his apocalyptic revelation. He's saying, listen, Jesus has come to us, church. We're being persecuted. We are without hope. We are worried. We're anxious. We don't know what's going on. But Jesus has come to me in this vision to tell me he's coming. He's coming to defeat evil. He's coming to overturn the oppressive nature of the world. And he's coming to bring a kingdom and a dominion that will last forever. 
ever. And the church would have read that opening verse in, in, in John's revelation, and they would have remembered what was said in Daniel, and they would have been eager for that kingdom that was coming. But even though they read that and would have been excited to read that, to know that the kingdom is coming, to remember that Jesus is returning, that his dominion is coming, that his kingdom is eternal, they still would have had this nagging question of what are we supposed to do, John, while we wait? John, I understand that Jesus is coming, but right now we're experiencing a lot of persecution. John, I understand that Jesus is coming. There's hope in that, but right now I'm feeling pretty hopeless. What are we supposed to do while we wait, John? It's a powerful question. And, and I think it's sometimes difficult for us as the American church to sympathize with the original church because they were persecuted in ways that we weren't. Now, I think the church in China and the church in persecuted nations, they can very easily relate to the original church. But we sometimes can't. But we can relate to this question. John, what are we supposed to do here as the church on earth while we wait for the kingdom that is coming? What is our purpose here? And Jesus gives that purpose through chapters 2 and 3. When he writes these letters to the church, to these seven churches, and obviously we're not going to read all of these different letters, but for some reason, rather than finding the purpose behind these red letters, what we often tend to do when we read Revelation is pick out all the little tiny details of the letters and take each detail and ascribe it to a certain thing. We say, oh, this detail here means that this church was the church of this time, or this church is the church of this location, or this church is the church that is going to end up doing this. And, and like so much of the rest of Revelation, we take all these little details, and we give them such significant meanings. But the details of these seven letters that is written, that is given to the church by Jesus, isn't so much that there's all these little tiny things that Jesus is trying to tell us to prepare for, to predict. But he's calling us to a certain thing. And we find this by the, rep, uh, the, the repeated phrases within the letters. Repetition in any form of prophetic writing or apocalyptic writing is a sign of importance, significance, and substance. And so what we have to do when we read these seven letters, these short letters, is find repeated phrases. And what we find over and over and over again in each of these seven later letters is the phrase, I know your works. At the beginning of each letter, Jesus is, you know, he's writing to each church, and as he writes to the angel in the church of Ephesus, it says, I know your works. As he writes to the angel of Smyrna, it says, I know your affliction and poverty. As he writes to Pergamum, I know where you live. As he writes to Thyatira, I know your works, your love. As he writes to Sardis, he says, I know your works, your reputation. To Philadelphia, he says, I know your works. To Laodicea, I know your works. He repeats this over and over and over again because Jesus, what he is saying is, I know you're being persecuted. I know you feel helpless. I know you feel worried. I know you're anxious, but I see you. 
I'm watching you. I'm paying attention to you. I see what you're doing. I see how you're acting. I see how you're behaving. And he goes to these, different, these seven different churches, and each one of them is acting differently. Each one of them is acting contrary to another one. Some of them are acting good. Some of them are acting bad. But what he's saying, the purpose of what he's saying is, I'm watching you. I'm paying attention to you. And then at the conclusion of every single one of these letters, he says, let anyone who has ears to listen, who... who who, who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He says at the, at the conclusion of every single letter to the churches, he starts by saying, I know what you're going through. I know how you're acting. I know what you're doing. And then he concludes it by saying, but listen to me. Listen to my Spirit that is within you. Listen to my Spirit that is guiding you. Don't pay attention to the persecution. Don't pay attention to the world. Don't be conformed to it. Don't be tempted by it. Don't be hopeless because of it. Listen to me. Listen to my spirit. That's the message that these seven letters to the churches has. He's saying, I know you. I'm paying attention to you. So listen to me. Commit to me. And honestly, when it comes to persecution, that's the hardest part. When it comes to feeling hopeless, to being worried, to being anxious, that's the hardest part of being the church. It's committing to someone who we feel isn't there, who we feel isn't watching us, who we feel isn't coming back. It's hard to commit. Billy Graham received a letter, the late evangelist, Billy Graham, received a letter from a woman who was engaged and was about to be married to a communist um, back in the 60s or 50s, I think. And she sent this letter to Billy Graham because of the power that's in this letter, the illustration that's in this letter for the church. And I want to read this letter. And I want you to tell me when you hear this, or I want you to think about when you hear this letter, how this should apply to us. Now, this is a, a man that's engaged to be married to a woman and is about to break it off, break off the engagement. He says, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the only ones who get slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made un, as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny that we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have time for the, or, or money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. We live, our, our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life, life with which no, matter, no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard on our ego or appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the fact that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. 
The communist causes my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my life, my, my wife, my mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens, as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both guides and drives my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude towards it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. Now that is written by a man dedicated to an earthly philosophy. An earthly philosophy. Those were his words about an earthly and oppressive philosophy. This is a philosophy that has no salvation power. It is a philosophy that really doesn't show love. It's a philosophy that in no way, shape, or form had anything to do with the creation of the universe. It is a philosophy that in no way, shape, or form has anything to do with sacrifice. That man's commitment to it was incredible. I wonder how willing we would be to substitute the term communism in that letter with the term Christianity, with the term cause of Christ. You see, a lot of times we face hopelessness and helplessness in our lives. And that's it. Our commitment to Christ, our commitment to our faith, to our belief in his ultimate victory, wanes and fades because of situations we're faced in. And John knew that that was what the church was experiencing at the time of his writing of this letter. He understood that. Jesus understood that. And that's why Jesus gave John this revelation. And ultimately, he wanted, Jesus wanted the church to understand what they were to be committing to. I just want to read this few verses here in verse five, or in chapter 5 says, this is John, he says, Then I saw the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or even look at it. And I wept and wept, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. And then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent to the earth. And he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. John's weeping is indicative, indicative of our feeling of hopelessness. And this spirit that he was 
watching in this revelation, John just felt as if everything was falling apart. It's hopeless. No one can do this. No one can save us. No one can bring us into eternity. We are doomed. And we feel that way while we live here. But what John is saying through his revelation, what Jesus is trying to so adamantly tell us, is it's not hopeless because he is worthy. Because he died. Because he conquered. Because he can open the scroll. Because he can bring us into eternity. He is what is worth committing to because he is worthy. And if we haven't committed to him, if we haven't given our lives to him, then we better step up and do that because there's no one else worthy enough to commit to. And if our commitment begins to wane, and falter, then it's time that we reevaluate. And we ask ourselves when we face worry, when we face hopelessness, when we face anxiety, are we backing down or are we stepping up and saying, I'm committed because Jesus died for me, because Jesus is worthy? I hope, church, that we're committed. And I hope that if you haven't been committed, that you're ready to make that commitment. Because he is worthy. And nothing in this world can prevent what he is bringing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your worthy son. Thank you for his love for his willingness to die on our behalf. God, help our unbelief. Help us when we're wavering. Help us when we're falling short. Help us when we are losing heart. Help us to commit to you fully and truly. Lord God, thank you for committing to us. Thank you for the love that you have for us. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I hope, church, that you are committed to him. And if not, I hope you decide to make that commitment. Because he is worthy. And there is nothing on this earth that can prevent what he has set into motion. Join us this Wednesday in our morning devotion and in our time of psalms and praise that evening and be prepared to come back and study more of Revelation this next Sunday. We'll see you then.